Mark chapter 14, verse 22 to 31. And I will go ahead and read this for us. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're nearing the end of our um, we're nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll most likely finish the Book of Mark around February ish. Okay, right around maybe Valentine's Day. And uh, more and more, though, we've been going in depth into uh, the meaning of Jesus's death. Right, nearing. This, as we near the end of his life. It's all been kind of building up to this. And, and here, we have a passage that once again kind of takes us deeper into the, the meaning of Jesus' death by taking us deeper into the meaning of the Passover meal. The Passover meal. See, what the church observes as the Lord's Supper and the communion today was originally the Passover meal of the Israelites. And it's just as Jesus shares his last Passover meal with his disciples that he institutes the very first communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And through that, uh, just as the Old Testament circumcision transitioned into New Testament baptism, uh, the Passover meal makes its transition into New Testament communion. Now, Mark highlights quite a few things here for us about the communion, about the Lord's Supper, but I want to hone in on two things for us today. And the first is, how Jesus elevates the meaning of the Passover meal for us. Okay? That's the first point. And the second is how we are to properly receive this meal and understand the true meaning of this meal. Okay? So how Jesus elevates the meal and how we are to properly receive this meal. Okay? So let's take a look at these one at a time. So first, how Jesus elevates the meaning of this meal. The context of this passage is in verse 22, as they were eating. And that's referring to the Passover meal that was mentioned earlier in the chapter. They're eating the Passover meal. And it's, it's, this is the meal that they had annually ever since uh, the, the time of Moses, the great prophet who led the Israelites out of Egypt. And that's the, the Exodus, right? And since the eve of Exodus, they have observed this Passover meal in every Israelite household uh, as a way of commemorating how God's judgment passed over them because they trusted in God's provision. They trusted in God's provision. And, and there are these ancient documents now that show that the Passover meal was observed with this liturgy, something like a devotional, led by the head of the household. And the head of the household will say something like this. 
This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And then the head of the house will distribute the bread and then everyone at the table will eat. Now, all the language in our passage today implies that Jesus is taking on that role of that head of the household for his friends, for his disciples, and leading them in this Passover liturgy, Passover devotional. Look how he says, it says here, he took the bread and after blessing it, and this is not the meal sort of opening prayer. This is while they were eating, right? He's stepping into the Passover liturgy now. After blessing it, he then gave it to them. He distributes them, right? Same with the cup in verse 23. He took the cup and he gave thanks and he distributed it to them, okay? But here's the difference, and this is the fascinating part. Jesus is also changing the liturgy, okay? He's leading his disciples into a very different kind of Passover meal, one that isn't contradicting the traditional Passover meal, but seems to infuse new meaning into it. Okay, there's an entirely new ingredient here. Take a look. Right? The, this very radical thing that Jesus says at the end of verse 22. Take, this is my body. Okay. Now remember, the, the, the usual liturgy is, this is the bread of affliction, right? which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. But Jesus now says, this is the bread that represents my body. Okay. And he goes even further than that in verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Okay. Now earlier I said that the Israelites had the judgment of God pass over them because they trusted in God's provision. What was that provision? It was this. God had commanded the Israelites to take a lamb without blemish, kill it, and take some of the blood and put it on their doorposts, and that lamb would essentially represent the substitutionary sacrifice for, the, for that household that would cause God's justice to pass over that household. So everyone in that household would be spared. Why? Because the lamb wasn't spared, and they trusted in that provision of the lamb. So if they put their trust in the lamb, whose blood was shed, their blood wouldn't be shed. Their life would be spared. But see, in this Passover meal, in our passage, there's no substitutionary lamb. There's no lamb. Why not? Because Jesus is the lamb. Okay. He says, my blood is the blood of the covenant. Okay. The promise of God that anyone who trusts in God's provision would be saved comes through my blood. Okay. So this kind of recalls what John the Baptist said of Jesus in the, in the very beginning of the gospel. He said, behold, the lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? It's becoming true here. So Jesus is now infusing new meaning into the bread and the blood. Or a better way to say that might be, he's fulfilling the meaning. He's fulfilling the meaning of the bread and the blood. The bread of affliction is his body because he will be afflicted. And the blood of the lamb is his blood because he will be crucified and sacrificed as a substitute lamb. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you trust in me as the Israelites had trusted in the lamb, then God's judgment will pass over you and your household. You will have your exodus from sin and death. 
So Jesus is elevating the, the meaning of the Passover meal to mean something so much more than one historical event some thousands of years ago for one nation. Because if Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, okay, then that means this salvation is for both Israelites and Gentiles who put their trust in him. Right? Not everyone in terms of this universalistic sense of everyone gets saved. Because Jesus says... This is, a, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. He doesn't say this is poured out for all. He says this is poured out for many. He's pouring this out for his people, his chosen people, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, all those who put their trust in the Lamb of God. He's saying he is the one who will be sacrificed. He will, he will be the one who will represent uh, the Lamb that is, is killed and slaughtered and bled. And in doing this, Jesus identifying himself as the ultimate Lamb of God who takes over the sin of the world, he's now also infusing new meaning into all the burnt offerings, all the sacrifices that were all throughout the Old Testament. They were all actually ultimately pointing to this ultimate Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, the Son of God. He will be burnt up, consumed on the altar as an offering for the sake of his people. So this meal now points us to Jesus as the Lamb of God and even as not only the, the ultimate Lamb, but the ultimate prophet, the, the greater Moses who leads his people um, out of the land of slavery into the promised land. He's not just delivering merely the physical nation of Israel. He's, he's, he's saving spiritual Israel made up of Jews and Gentiles. He's the greater Moses. And so this Passover meal, right, now rightfully becomes the Lord's meal. It, it becomes the Lord's supper. It's about commemorating Jesus Christ, who gave up his divine glory to become the ultimate bread of affliction, the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood will be poured out for many. He elevates the meaning of this meal to be about this great cosmic salvation, now, here's the additional point that's connected to this, and that is this. If you believe this, and it's only if you believe this, I, I would go as far as to say, it's only if you believe this, then you have not only a reason to see a new meaning in the Passover meal, but a new meaning in any meal, okay? And by that I mean, if Jesus is who he reveals himself to be here, the Lamb of God that takes over the sin of the world leads his people out of exodus, out of sin and death. Only then do you have a true reason for eating anything, period. Okay? How, how so? So let me go to this guy named Thomas Nagel, who's a philosopher at NYU and atheist. And he wrote a book titled, What Does It All Mean? And in that book he writes, Since the grave is life's only goal. It is ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously and want our lives to matter from the outside, meaning matter objectively and truly. That's asking too much, he says. You can say we, we all get to create our own meaning, but to want that self-made meaning to be truly meaningful, he says, is ridiculous. It's asking for something that this material universe, this naturalistic universe, cannot 
give us. There's no ultimate meaning to our lives, to our living, to our breathing, and to our eating. And he goes on to say that even if you conjure up a meaning and think it's a good meaning, and because you believe it will make a difference, whether it's promoting justice, helping the poor, advocating for diversity, equality, higher education, all that good stuff, from the secular, materialistic point of view, in the end, whatever, you, whatever difference you think you make, in the end, won't make any difference. In fact, he says, quote, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. What a depressing statement. But he's taking the, this materialistic worldview to its logical conclusion because he says in the end, it all ends with death and meaninglessness. It all comes to nothing. It'll all be forgotten. So why? Why live? Why get out of bed? Why get dressed for work? Why fight for goodness and justice in the world full of badness and injustice? And why eat? Why sustain yourself if it all ends in death and brokenness? But you see, at the Lord's Supper, where Jesus offers himself as a Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and we do have our exodus out of sin and death, then we have a reason to live, we have a reason to hope, we have a reason to strive, and a reason to eat. So that's why I say if you find the meaning that's really infused into the Lord's Supper here, it, it will not only infuse new meaning into the Passover meal, it will infuse new meaning to all of your meals. All of your meals. All of your eating and drinking and living. And Jesus says this in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, the drinking continues, or the feasting continues into the kingdom of God. So if you, if you have this meaning here, you have that meaning later. And when he says, I will not do something until that day, that was the traditional way people made oaths back then, and, and oaths were quite a serious thing. It meant if you break it, you, you, you will pay for it with your life. That's what it meant for them. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm so committed to bringing my people into the, the perfect kingdom of God with perfect justice and peace, that I will go to the extent of giving my life for them to keep this oath. And he did. Right. And that's why he wants this meal to be about him, a remembrance of him. He wants us to remember not only what he's done for us, but what we get through what he's done for us. We receive the kingdom of God, the reason for feasting eternally with God in this earthly, temporary, commemorating meal in the Lord's Supper. In this meal, we're reminded the kingdom of God is coming. In this meal, we're reminded God's perfect peace is coming. His perfect justice is coming. His perfect love is coming. His perfect health is coming in this kingdom of God. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, in fact, every time we eat anything, it should be a reminder of this. The kingdom of God is near and Jesus has brought it near to us. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. This is what we need ultimately, the, the undoing of all the effects of sin and death. And we find that answer in the Lord's Supper, where we find God who is so committed to this mission to the point of laying down his own life. And that's why he was born. So he could give up his life. He, would, he took on human life so he could give it up for us. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give 
them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because it's the true meaning and significance of this, this Passover meal. That we have passed over, we have passed over, from the land of sin and death to the land of the living, to the land of feasting forever with God. We're born once to a life that ends in death. About that, Thomas Nagel is right. But now we're given a second birth that will not end in death, but last into eternity into the kingdom of God. So what a meal. What a, what a gigantic meal. I mean, it's such a tiny, we, we take, partake of it in tiny elements. But the significance of it, right? It's actually a proper that it's symbolic and tiny because if we were to quantify the significance of this into physical meals, we will, I think our stomachs will explode. <laughs> it ought to be symbolic so we can really meditate upon the true meaning of it. So, okay, that's how Jesus elevates the meaning of the Passover meal and all meals. Now we go to the second point. How, how do we properly receive this meal? Okay, And it's important that we get this. It's really important that we get this because... Without this, none of this has any application. So we, let's talk about this. How do we properly receive this meal? Here's the first step. You have to take it, and you have to eat it. Okay? Notice Jesus doesn't just say, look, this is my body. Check it out. <laughs> look, behold. He says, take it eat. You have to take it. This is how a meal becomes effective for you. You can't enjoy the benefits of a meal if you can't, you can't enjoy the power that comes from the meal and be nourished through it unless you take it and eat it. You can't just stare at it and expect it to somehow nourish you. You have to take it and eat it. I read a news story recently about a man who, who ate a $120,000 banana in this art museum by this, so it's by this Italian artist who duct taped, literally duct taped the banana to a wall. And I, I think he's saying something about global trade or whatever, and, and that's 120K. And this, this guy, I love this man, he, he calls himself a performance artist, he walks into the museum, and in front of everyone, just takes it off the wall, peels it and eats it in front of everyone. And he's, I love what he says after that. It's pretty funny. I love Catlin's, and that's the Italian artist's name. I love Catlin's work. It's very delicious. Okay. Now, I'm not saying what he did is okay. I'm not encouraging you to do this. I'm just saying I get where he's coming from. You know, like, I get his, like, food is meant to be eaten, not duct taped. <laughs> if we don't actually take and eat what Jesus is offering us here, we're not experiencing its full effect. We won't taste it. We definitely won't be nourished by it. If, if all that we do with the Lord's Supper and, and the meaning that's infused into it, all we do is, is, is we reflect on it. We meditate on it. We, we think upon it. But we don't take it and eat it. It's no good. Now, okay, what does that mean? Does it just mean like physically taking it and eating the elements? No. Here's what biblical, the biblical meaning of taking it and eating means. You have to take it by a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You have to take it by a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you take and eat. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. Let a person examine himself, 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And, and the word examine here in the Greek means to put something to the test to see whether it's genuine. Put something to the test to see if it's genuine. So to take the body of Christ and eating of it means this, that you have a genuine faith in Christ that has been examined. Okay. A genuine faith in Christ that has been examined. And Paul then goes on to tell us how we are to examine our faith in Christ. It is by examining our relationship to the body of Christ. Okay. Our faith in Christ is examined not only in this way, but especially in this way, by the way we relate to the body of Christ. So Paul would say this, if you, if you don't have any faith in Jesus, you shouldn't eat the Lord's Supper. That's pretty basic and commonsensical. But if you're also not, let's say, reconciled with a brother or sister in Christ, if, let's say, you're not forgiving towards a brother or sister in Christ, you really shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. Because that's not partaking of the body and blood of Christ in a worthy manner. It's inconsistent with your object of faith, who's all about reconciling. So until you're reconciled with this person, or until you're forgiven this person, you're not a rightful partaker of the Lord's Supper. Remember what Jesus said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if the meaning of the Lord's Supper is you're forgiven, then the proper exercise of that is you're, you're forgiving others. And so Paul says, examine yourself, whether you have the faith, genuine faith in Christ, and examine that faith by the way you relate to the body of Christ. And be a rightful partaker of the Passover meal. Partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That is how our faith is examined and proven. That, that's... That's how you know you've taken it, eaten it, and digested it in the way you relate to the body of Christ. Now, we're not going to unpack verses 27 to 31 that much, but there's something powerful here. One thing I want to point out for us. See, Jesus says they will all fall away. They will all scatter. And Peter, in particular, denies this. Uh, although Jesus says, you deny me three times. The disciples say, no, we're not going to fall away. Peter emphatically says, I will never deny you. I will instead die with you, okay? There's this argument, basically, debate going on about, right, their loyalty and their, their faithfulness. And, and then what happens? They all fall away, right? Peter denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus said he would. And the simple point I want to make here is this. Jesus knew all this, and yet here he is, sharing this meal with them. He deliberately chose to stay in this utterly unequal, lopsided relationship with his disciples. In a relationship with friends who will betray him. Jesus chooses to be the one who is faithful and sacrificial, even as his friends are unfaithful and, frankly, kind of pitiful. So as Christians, as followers of Christ... We have to register this. We, your faith in Jesus is proven, examined, and tested in this when you choose to love someone unequally, lopsidedly. 
And the simplest and greatest act of that is by forgiving them. Forgiving the, the brother or sister who's wronged you. Reconciling with them and by eating with them once again. The biblical standard of reconciling. Like, how do you know you're reconciled? Open the biblical standards if you can eat with them. I mean, how have you eaten with someone that you're not right with? Right? Have you felt that awkwardness and that just just how discomforting that is, how uncomfortable that is to sit across from someone who you're not right with and having to eat with them? Because what, you're gonna make eye contact? You're gonna have to talk to one another. But see, that's how we push towards reconciliation. Yeah. That's the sign, not just at the Lord's table, at all tables. Reconciliation means you can eat together. That's fellowship. Jesus identifies his fellowship with us as, hey, I'm knocking on your door. Let me in so I can eat with you, so we can have fellowship. How do you restore fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ? You've got to eat with them. So until you're there, you're, you haven't quite reconciled. Until you're there, you're not quite there. This is how it's going to sink in for you. That your faith has been tested and examined to be genuine. That you've actually taken this by faith and eaten it and digested it in your heart. And it's not something that you've simply beheld and thought about it, reflected on it, meditated on it, and thought it's nice. If you've taken it and eaten it, you'll have the strength to act on it. Use the power you gain through it, the spiritual strength you gain through it, and do something spiritual with it, namely reconciling with a brother and sister who's offended you, who's wronged you, who's sinned against you. This is how it sinks in. This is how, this is how it sinks into your heart. Somebody asked me recently, when did becoming a father of a daughter sink in for you? And I think I said something like, when I first picked up like her baby clothes, because it's, you know, I personally prefer the, I, I like that color distinction between the boys' clothes and the, and the girls' clothes, and that when I picked up the girls' clothes, I, that's when it sunk in for me, somebody's gonna be wearing this. Like, OMG, I'm gonna be father of a daughter. But the truth is, I still have these sort of sinking in moments um, now and then, and realize, wow, I really am a father of baby girls. Um, so recently, we were at Target. Our family, whole family was at Target, and my daughter had left her pink jacket in one of the shopping carts, and like at the bottom of the car, so we can't see, and we forgot about it. So yesterday, just yesterday, I went back uh, sometime after dinner to see if it's in the lost and found. And it sank in for me then, as I got out of the car, and as I was walking towards Target in the parking lot, that's when it, it hit me again. Like, wow, I'm literally walking over to Target right now for no other reason than to retrieve a four-year-old girl's pink winter jacket. What is, who am I? What is going on? I'm having these, like, this existential moment. I'm really a father. I mean, when was the last time you went to Target for no other reason than to retrieve a four-year-old girl's pink jacket from Lost and Found? Who makes those trips? Dads do. And I was a dad. And it's, it's sunk in for me. Does the fact that you are a follower of Christ sink in for you now and then? 
does it hit you and you go, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm a Christian. This is what Christians do. And it's a little unnatural. It's a little awkward. It's a little not what I'm used to. But if I'm a Christian, this is what I should do. It should. When was the last time you really felt this in your heart? Wow, I really am a follower of Christ. The Holy Spirit really is inside me. Because this is not my usual pattern of behavior. Forgiving people, reconciling with people, saying sorry to people, sitting with someone I've offended and been offended by, reconciling. This is not what I do, but it must be because I am a follower of Christ and the Spirit of God lives inside me. So I want to encourage you with this. Let that next moment when you get that existential moment when you realize you're a Christian, let that be when you choose to forgive someone so totally so unconditionally, so unequally and lopsidedly that you realize this can only happen through the power of God and not through me. God's doing something in me. Let that be the moment when it sinks in for you. Because that's how you know you've truly taken and eaten this meal and you've digested it. It's when you can show this kind of Christ-like strength, Christ-like relational strength. It doesn't take any strength. Zero strength. It takes zero strength to love Someone who loves you perfectly. The way you get along with people who get along with you is no way of examining your faith. It gives you no comfort, no assurance of how well you're doing spiritually. It doesn't take any strength to love someone who loves you perfectly. It takes strength to love and care for and forgive someone who wrongs you. So if you've taken of Christ and you've eaten of him, and you've digested this spiritually in your heart, show forth his strength. Show forth your nourishment that comes from him in your life, and especially in your relationship to the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we we pray you would feed us these wonderful truths so that we can properly take it in. Holy Spirit, help us digest it in our hearts. Strengthen us, will in us, work in us to obey, to act. Let it sink in for us that we are indeed children of God and followers of Jesus Christ. Assure us, Lord, of the, the great work that you have begun at this table and continue to do and continue to remind us of as we partake of it time and time again. Remind us of these wonderful things, assure us of these things, and empower us to live in, live in these wonderful truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.